0: Ever wondered what goes into keeping a restaurant lined up night in, night out? Well, today we're chatting with second-generation restaurateur Solomon Siegel. Solomon is a partner in Victoria, BC's Pagliacci's, a local institution which is, as you probably guessed, lined up all the time. Today, we're exploring what Solomon learned as a child immersed in the experience of his father and uncle building Pagliacci's, how his family culture is still reflected in the restaurant today, lessons he learned opening his first cocktail bar, and so much more. Let's get into it. Welcome to Guest Getter, the best place for restaurateurs to learn the art and science of getting more new guests, getting guests coming back more often, and getting guests spending more per visit so that you can be more profitable and do more of what you love. My name's Kyle Guilfoyle. Let's hit it. Solomon, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I like to begin with this question, which is how would you describe your particular area of expertise or your zone of genius?
1: <laughs> oh, that's an interesting one. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I, I had therapy book later in the day, uh, but we can start now. Uh, yes. Let's do it. Uh, yeah i was kind of i was born into the into the restaurant world really uh my, my father and my uncle uh started paliacis uh in 79 before i was born so you know i think you can almost see it from there but there's a picture back behind me of me sitting behind the bar with my dad when i'm like you know three years old or so mm-hmm. so um awesome. i was really raised in uh with an incredibly strong sense of hospitality mm-hmm. and um and, and really, uh, making sure that people feel welcome being a big deal. And then, um, in my early teen or late teens, I should say, um, I kind of uh, headed down the 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 evil bartending path, as it as it were, mm-hmm. and um, really found fascination with learning everything I could about spirits and beer and wine and espresso and everything drink. And spent a huge amount of time researching all of that. And uh, at, opened my own place for a while. Um, have done uh many different uh seminars teaching seminars at the you know portland cocktail week and Tales of the cocktail in new orleans as well as stuff in victoria here and and other places in between and uh so i've done a lot of that and a lot of training of of bartenders and uh and then also i've done a huge amount now of um you know fully running restaurants and 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 um coming up with whole programs and also you know revamping things and doing major renovations and uh you know uh and then i'm pretty good at fixing toilets which is probably the most important thing that you need to know in the
0: entire hospitality world definitely a crucial skill so you uh you've really run the gamut and since since you mentioned uh therapy and, and therapy sessions well let's I, i'd actually love to uh to go to your uh your, your childhood and and growing up in the industry okay. and I'm, I'm, I'm always curious. I'm always curious about folks who've done that, and uh, I'd be, I'd love, I'd love it if you could take us to a point or some, some or several points that left an indelible mark on you, such that you know that was when you were like, this is, this is what I want to do. You know, this is what I want to do for work. It's the world in which I want to live. Uh, do you, do you remember any, uh, any instances like that? That's an interesting one. Um you know, cause I, I, did try and get out. I, I was,
1: a, I spent about three years as a paramedic.
0: Oh, really? And uh, so I, I,
1: tried to. Make escape. Yeah. Um, I spent three years doing that when I kind of thought I had enough of it and I really wanted to help people. And, uh, and then growing up, you know, um, I grew up in a, in a world of music, uh, with having live music at Poliachi's uh, for since 1979. So I, I grew up really focusing on, on, on trying to be a musician as well too. But, um, I guess in terms of the hospitality side of things, you know, it, it's it was just a way of being for my family, uh, my, my grandmother, um, who was in the restaurant, you know, every single day when she was when she was alive and in Victoria, and um, she really had this whole her whole way of showing love to people was by feeding them. Mm-hmm. And being, and if I went over to my grandmother's house when I was Booby, we called her, you know, I'm Jewish. So Booby is the is the diminutive form of, of grandmother. And I'd go over to the house and I'd sit up watching TV. She'd get out of bed every hour to see if I was hungry. And mm-hmm. and then if I say, no, I'm fine, she would go through the list of things that I could make for myself if I happened to be hungry while she was sleeping, because mm-hmm. God forbid I want a sandwich and she wasn't there to prepare it for me. Wow, yeah. And even when she was older. She, she, I remember going over to visit her, and she said, I, I'm too old to cook now. And, and I said, It's okay, I've already had lunch. And she, and she made me make a sandwich, not for her, for me, and then made me eat the sandwich in front of her. Wow. Because I needed to eat. So that was, you know, feeding people and, and taking care of them and always having enough room um, is it, core to, to the way that I grew up and how I was raised and you know the idea that there wasn't enough room for somebody at the table or that uh you know somebody couldn't eat um was was not okay you know and and my my, you know my dad never turned one person away here because they couldn't afford a meal you know they uh it's it's always been it's always been about community and bringing everybody in and taking
0: care of everybody well i definitely think that's reflected in 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 pegs it's uh you know i i think a, a word I would, I would definitely use is, is it's, it's like, a, it feels like a place of plenty and, you know, you're, you're never going to leave uh, hungry. That's for sure. Um, so, no. so, yeah, yeah, that's, that's awesome. And okay. So, well, actually I got, I got asked this, this, this just came up for me. I, I'm really curious in an alternate world or universe uh, what, what else would you be doing? Like for, well,
1: yeah. i really love playing music uh, yeah. so i mean and i do a lot of that and uh and actually my band the vanity project plays at poliachi's every wednesday night are you uh, kidding you're, you're in 10. the band yeah i'm in the band i'm in the band yeah I've, I've kind of come back to that in the last last year i um i haven't been playing uh performing music i've been playing music since i was uh, little since i started playing guitar when i was 13. um but in, in the last year um, it's really been a big thing for me to come back to kind of uh, one of my major passions, so I've been playing with the band again, and uh, we have live music Sunday through Thursday at Pagliacci's from 8 till 10, uh, with no cover, and have uh, since 1979, mm-hmm. so I'm really proud of our support of live music and, and so I really love doing that and i actually also run um, a property management company as well too because uh my, my family's involved in that and went, my my uncle passed away a few years ago and i took over heading up that business as, as well as running palagi so my i live in and then i'm a, and i'm a dad too so the, you know i i live in several alternate realities amazing um, and yeah and i and i really love all of it you know and i really love all of it i, I love the hospitality world and i love playing music and you know um I probably, if I was doing less of the hospitality, I'd be
0: doing more music. Well, that's, that's, that's me. Those are things I I, I had no idea. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely, um, I mean, I've, I've, de- I've experienced live music at pegs, but uh, I, I haven't, I haven't seen you perform. So I'll, I'll have to, I'll have to come and come and check it out really soon. Uh, and then. Some, yeah, we can. Yeah. Sorry, what's that? Kind of a uh, gypsy swing music, uh, you know, like Django Reinhardt style music. It's really fun. Awesome. And. So something else very interesting about you is you were you were way ahead of your time uh on the cocktail front. Uh you know, you you opened a, a fairly advanced cocktail bar before cocktails had settled themselves into the current drinking culture the way they are now. And and it was in a small city like Victoria, no less. So yeah. I'm curious what what led you to cocktail culture? How did you discover it? And, and, you know, what kind of, you know, what kind of had you continue going down that path?
1: a um, good, good question. Uh, well, and I can start with uh, my, my dad loves the story. Because, you know, in uh, you know 1979, when he opened up, he was he was bartending, and, and my, he didn't know anything about bartending. And he, um, one night, he had this one regular guest who was just kept on ordering martinis from him and sitting sitting next to him, staring at him and laughing at, at every time he ordered a martini. My dad finally went, why are you laughing at me? And he and he goes, I've never seen anyone blend a martini before. <laughs> and so, so I come from humble roots that way. Yeah. Um, I guess I, I so and I started working, you know, in the restaurant at about eleven. I was pouring coffee on Sundays. I would go into work with my dad and I would be the coffee kid and I would pour coffees and water and and help uh, bus bus tables. And, and I went on to, you know, working more and more on the floor. And I did work, I worked in the kitchen a little bit, but I, I like being on the floor more, but I like being the creativeness and um and being able to kind of make stuff as well so the bar was kind of a natural kind of place that i kind of went towards and i started doing bar shifts actually when i was 16 at the restaurant Mm -hmm. and um i remember specifically one 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 step along the way was that one night someone asked me what vermouth was and i realized i had no idea what vermouth was it was just this bottle of of uh stuff that you had on the back bar with a speed spout in it and that you only ever got that when someone ordered a martini and that almost never happened and when you did you'd put your finger over the speed spout and drizzle it in so not get too much <laughs> so i tasted it and of course being the horribly oxidized thing was i assumed it was an olive liqueur, because that <laughs> <laughs> it just it tasted weird and funky and i'm like maybe it's an olive liqueur is that what it's going for cuz it just tastes like olives to me or something and like and the, you know the connection with i guess the olive and the martini it made sense that it would but so i was and, and you know obviously it's not if anyone <laughs> is listening who doesn't know that it's not an olive liqueur mm-hmm. or liqueur even at all um and then and then as time went on i remember one night uh, going well i need to know what every single thing is behind the bar if i'm going to be a good bartender and I so I went at the end of the one night I sat down I tasted every single thing behind the bar, and I wasn't me getting loaded. I mean there were there were those nights too, but this was uh, like I scientifically sat down and, and tasted everything. So I kind of developed started developing my palate at that point. And as time went on, I really I started loving drinks. You know, we uh, um, I, I loved um, uh, and I really love the idea of classics. You know, I always was drawn towards um, you know the greatest music in the world whether it be uh, classical music or jazz which is black classical music you know i love those musics and i love classic literature and so i started getting into classic drinks too and um really uh got excited about you know traditional german pilsner or um, you know bordeaux or or like really good scotch i remember i discovered LeFroig. Uh, scotch whiskey because it was uh, it was the next price point up from the Glenlivet 12, and I and I knew when I was underage buying booze that if I went in and bought scotch they didn't ID me, um, and if I bought <laughs> if I bought if you bought cider you got ID'd right away, but oh, yeah. you go in and buy a bottle of scotch, yeah you got a bit of a beard you're like okay well you can get strategy it. and. Uh, yeah. So then I went, I bumped up to uh and was just like, oh, it's amazing. And just gotten the, the the idea of these all the beautiful Scotch whiskeys. I really got into Grappa early. Wow. Um Grappa. And, and, yeah, so I got introduced to Grappa. My friend, uh my friend and guitar teacher Mark Atkinson was really in love with Cafe Correto. Mm-hmm. Uh from his travels and stuff. So I I really I, I, the Cafe Coreto thing. We always had Grappa because you know, Paliacis, we, we always had at least one bottle of grappa around. Mm-hmm. Um and then, and then I, so then the next step was like, well, you know, interested in making cocktails and certainly those were the biggest deals when you'd make it round to China whites for girls, they, they go, they go, oh, it's layered and they get all excited. And, and, but it certainly tasted horrible. And I didn't like that. I didn't want to drink sugary stuff. So I was drawn towards the idea of a dry martini. Mm-hmm. And so I'd go out, order dry martinis and they tasted horrible. And I couldn't understand why this incredibly iconic drink that I, you know, I grew up on watching the Thin Man with my dad and, uh, and you know, like where they would go and drink six or seven martinis. Why would these classy, you know, sophisticated people be drinking a drink that tasted like garbage, like at best, it tasted like salty olive brine that every single bartender who ever worked there had his fingers in you know, like, and, and, uh, at worst, it just tasted like, like water. Right. And I, and I, you know, and so I started kind of going, well, what is this shake and not stir? Cause I, I learned to shake a martini, uh, you know, like, cause that was, that was what you did. You probably you got the vodka and you put your finger over the, and hardly poured it in and you just shook it nice and hard. And then you put as many olives as you could stick on the skewer in there. And, and that was, that was what a martini was. And when I, when I remember asking, well, why are we shaking it? You know like why why do you do this it was like oh that's because that's what you do mm-hmm. nobody had put any you know nobody put thought into that at the time nobody nobody put thought into why we're using bar mix and not using fresh squeezed juices and i started you know experimenting reading I, checking out like um anything I could find online there wasn't a lot at the moment like uh, Robert Hess was doing a lot of cool stuff so that was that was helpful and but most of the bartending books were pretty recipe based and you know and who knows how well they kind of vetted their recipes and I just and then i and then i started learning hearing a little bit about bitters. so i would just order bitters and like sometimes they'd make it in the country and sometimes they wouldn't and, and like i just ordered every bitters on the market which at the time was like 15. um so you could do that mostly it was fee brothers and it got a little bit of like robert has i think helped helped a lot in those early days and um and i just and I learned kind of through bits and bobs and experimentation about finally how to make a martini that I thought was amazing. And and that was with gin, and it was more vermouth and making sure I used fresh vermouth that was kept in the fridge and using orange bitters and stirring it and using a lemon twist. Mm-hmm. And and all of those things that are, you know, I, when when we had, when I had Solomon's, we had to call it the pre prohibition martini mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. otherwise people wouldn't know what they were getting. And they would, they would be surprised that it wasn't a glass of cold vodka. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I really was careful to, you know, present it differently. Much same as um, when my dad opened Pagliacci's, he called it the New York cheesecake as opposed to cheesecake because everywhere else had like a jello thing that they called cheesecake in mm-hmm. Victoria. And so he had to, he made up the term New York cheesecake, which is everywhere now. Uh, but nobody said that. It was just in New York, you didn't call it a New York cheesecake. You <laughs> got a piece of cheesecake. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was the, the beginning point. And I really got and I kind of got that I could impress people with cocktails in a way that um, you know it was something that I was doing that was unique that anybody can open up a bottle of wine in any bar mm-hmm. um, but I could impress people with a cocktail that I made mm-hmm. and when I opened up Solomon 2008 I I thought we were going to mainly serve wine and um, but I put a lot of work into a cocktail menu and, and started you know Using proper techniques and uh, and fresh squeezed juice per order, and you know using good quality products, and um, and uh, just more because I thought well this will be a secondary thing and I'll just do this the best as well too. I was because I also got a really good espresso machine and I was like well everything I'm going to do with drinks is going to be the best I can possibly make it. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm gonna put as much effort and knowledge into my knowledge base of it so that when I present it to people, I can speak about it and I can really make sure that I feel like I'm giving them the best thing I can in the world, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then the cocktail thing took off from there cause people got really excited about it. And I was, I wish I would known because I would have set up the bar better <laughs> for cocktails.
0: Awesome. I I, I love all that. I, I have to interject with a little, uh you mentioned the martini quite a bit. I, I, so this makes me curious about, um, so I, the Vesper martini, do you, do you, do you stir, do you stir your Vespers? Well, I mean,
1: listen, like if we're, if we're making a Vesper it's because we're doing a whole James Bond thing. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't know how great a cocktail it is, Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it, it was a big cocktail. I think, you know, we're all, we're all making them like in half size versions and everything like that. Yeah. But I mean, I think, I think, and I think when you start using vodka and then putting other things in it, you're not going for a big flavor punch. So, you know, I, I don't think shaking it is, 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 is shaking. It's okay. You want vodka, you want as cold as possible. I mean, that's usually what people are going for, right. Is, mm-hmm. is it going for viscosity, and mouthfeel, which is, you know, there's not too many vodkas on the market that are actually vodkas and actually have any flavor profile. uh It's more, I think, about the viscosity of them. So, I think if someone orders a vesper, for the most part, you're shaking it because that's what they really want. Yeah, like they want the James Bond shaking and thing.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, a, a lot of you know, most purists I've encountered would 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 say you uh, you you stir it just because of like you know our kind of modern practices uh or um but I, i've actually it's one of those cocktails where i've i've split tested it with with said purists and i've so i've i've served yeah. them a shaken and a stirred and every single time the shaken uh outperforms the uh the stirred so it's anyways there's just uh i'd be i'd be curious to 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 know if you had a preference or anything like that um yeah
1: i i think that's one where i would i would I would usually defer to guest preference uh on, on that one in particular uh because because I, I think i think the vesper is more about it, it the james bond connection than it is about being an amazing
0: cocktail yeah yeah <laughs> I, I think that makes sense uh,
1: you know I, I, yeah i mean otherwise i i don't understand why you would cut the gin with with vodka i mean gin gin is kind of balanced it, it's not designed to be a cut know i've never had a gin that's like oh we made this gin like really really i mean that's how they often make gin right is is they'll is they'll make gin in this really concentrated form and then they essentially cut it with vodka before they bottle it so then we're cutting it yet again and then cutting and then diluting it Mm -hmm. I, i i don't know i mean i guess we're trying to go for this really subtle gin background flavor but i i don't know i that doesn't excite me so much Mm-hmm. um and especially if you're like when you're chilling it it's it's knocking down all those flavors even further totally. so it, i guess if you're if you don't really like gin it makes sense mm-hmm. but you know um, and then i and then i think there is something about when you get in those vodka drinks you're often going really really cold and then it's it's a it can be totally appropriate to shake it i i don't i don't think you're gonna you know i think that the the concern why we don't want to shake the uh, a, a a proper martini is largely because we don't want to get it too cold and we don't want to over dilute it. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think I'm not worried about that with a Vesper, um, because it's already kind of in a sense for starting from a very dilute point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, you know, gin, martini, you shake it. And like, even if you stir it, like, you know, just a little bit too long, the drink falls apart mm-hmm. and it's, it's, a, it's, a, I think the, the martini is the hardest cocktail to make. I, I think that it's the hardest cocktail because it is it is like of classic cocktails because it is a very very delicate balance point in the gin and vermouth ratio, the amount of bitters put in the and the and the dilution point and and the uh, and the and the chilling point. All of those things really have to be spot on for it to be good. And I think it's you know I, I wish that most young bartenders would just have to spend, you know, the first year of their career making nothing but martinis. It's like, you know, in Japanese restaurants where like, well, when you can cook the egg rice right, then oh, we'll let yeah. you
0: cook the egg. But if yeah. you can get the rice right, then you don't ever get to even think about the eggs. Yeah, right? I love, I love yeah. that. I- and, and how do you perfect the different, you know, the different sort of uh, subtle variations of the martini, you know, like like how do you get the perfect, you know, dry martini? How do you get how do you perfect the dirty martini? How about a burnt martini? The, the pre-prohibition, the 50-50, you know, um, and, it, and it's funny that you. Uh, dirty one, you perfect it by pouring it in the drain, I think. but uh, Which one? Which one? Perfectly perfect, the, the
1: dirty one. I think you perfectly yeah, perfect yeah. that by pouring it down the I, every once in a while i st- when i was bar- well i don't bartend much these days but when i would i would straw test one by accident because mm-hmm. i was just so automatic to test everything and i'd just be like <laughs> why is my mouth full of salt water
0: That'd be a pure salt yeah. bomb uh
1: and it's yeah. and it's
0: funny that you uh you say that uh you think the martini is the hardest one to get right I, I definitely think it's up there for me i've always uh i've always found the um the saz the sazerac to be the um the the hard, mm. well, at, at least when I was cutting my teeth that was like the one that I would like to get that really to not overpower it with the absinthe and you know get have have enough pace showed such that they actually like you know made an impact on the drink and the sweetness you know anyway so I just that just when you said that it, it's
1: definitely it's definitely another fine balance one cocktails mm-hmm. like that where there's nowhere to hide yeah, uh, oh, yeah it's totally. like I brew beer too I make <laughs> I love brewing pilsners because and you know, like it, you can make a, 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 you know, an IPA hot bomb thing. And you, there's a lot of place to hide the imperfections of the beer. But mm-hmm. if you brew Pilsner, you, you, there's nowhere to hide. It's, it's about clean balanced flavors mm-hmm. and you can't, if, if you mess up it, you can tell and the Sazerac, certainly that's another drink that absolutely you gotta, you gotta get right on. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. And especially so- with pollution. What's that? especially with dilution points with those drinks, yeah, big time, big time. No, Cause they're, 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 you really, you can go, you can go a little bit the, either way and the drinks wrong.
0: Yeah. And you especially know, just, if, and not- especially if a Sazerac is, is watered down, it is like particularly disgusting. I find. Yeah. I, I feel the same about the martini, but um, mm-hmm. I agree with you about the Sazerac as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would love, I'd love to go back to Solomon's uh, briefly and um, you know, that, that must've been a phenomenal education for you. And, and you were, you know, you were fairly young. And so I'd, I'd love it if you could uh, share perhaps some of the specific lessons you uh, took, took away and, you know, any lessons that if if you were to kind of, you know, reboot it, so to speak. Yeah. What are, yeah. What are some lessons that you would, you would uh, say to yourself, so to speak? There's a huge amount there. I mean, I was,
1: I was, uh, you know, my dad and uh, loves the quote. Um, there's no uh, from Bob Dylan. There, there's no success like failure. Mm-hmm. And uh, Solomon's was kind of my university. Um, you know, I, I didn't. I am a high school dropout. and never went to university or anything. So I, I learned business by by having a business fail. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot there. I, there's a lot I got out of that. I, I took I took a huge amount of lessons over, um, you know, work life balance and, um, and and just. Uh, you know, a t- ton of stuff like that. I mean, so there's there's a, a on a lot of different levels. Um, from a very practical standpoint of view, I guess like some of the smaller things in terms of building menus and price points and things is that um, I learned a lot about menu psychology, I think. Uh, I had this concept at Solomon's that I was going to do like this flat pricing model where I went, well, I'll just, I'll charge, I'll pour an ounce and a half of booze. Everywhere else was pouring, pouring an ounce of booze, as I always have, where you pay more for double. I'm like, I'm just gonna pour an ounce and a half. If you want to double like three ounces, it's, it's just double the price. There's no, there's no price break between a single and double, and there's no difference between anything on the bar. And I just, I would keep every, I kept all the spirits at that time. There was just, you know, keeping under, uh, you know, a hundred bucks a bottle was pretty easy. There wasn't the wealth of, uh, of super high end, uh, spirits at the time. Like certainly you could get some super high end scotches and high end cognacs, but everything else on the market essentially was under a hundred bucks a bottle. So, and I wasn't focusing on being a scotch bar or a high end brandy bar. I was focusing on, on cocktails. So I was looking for cool stuff. Um, but there, I don't think there was like, you know, occasionally, like I remember I, I found a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle, which at the time was like one hundred and seventy dollars. Mm-hmm. And I think I upcharged for that one. But like, you know, it was only one hundred. Like, you could, yeah, you could. I walked into a liquor store and there was a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle and I bought it for one hundred and seventy bucks. And wow. they said, do you want two you know, like, <laughs> Yeah, it was just easy that right? what he was looking for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so and so and then you could you could split it up too. So you could do three half ounces for the same ten bucks, and people then oh that's so expensive. And I was like, well, the, the places across the street is like for you know a basic you know bourbon is charging is is charging eight bucks, and like for for one ounce. So I'm cheaper than that. So you how am I expensive? And it's because the sticker price was expensive. I poured big, I poured bigger glasses of wine. So my sticker prices on the glass of wine looked expensive too. And, um, and, and it made everything because I, I I tried to like, just worry about my overall costs and and let people not have to, because I I wanted the uh, sort of a egalitarian approach to drinking, where I wanted people just to order what they wanted. And, and then I, and not worry about price so much and, uh, and, but there was nothing that was a bad deal because of that. There were things that were really good deals if you knew where to look, but there was nothing that was bad. And I think that that actually really hurt me uh, because I, I learned that um, people that really look at sticker price. And uh, and I don't think it's something you can get out of the habit of. And I think most people look in and sticker price means everything to them in terms of uh, in terms of if it feels expensive or not. Mm-hmm. So certainly when I came back to Pagliacci's, actually, one of the things I did at Pagliacci's is we were pouring, I think, you know, eight ounce glasses of wine. And wow. uh, and at the time, and I was like, well, we're going to pull back to pouring a five ounce pour and drop our prices accordingly. So people know that we're charging less than our competition for mm-hmm. the same wine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're going to give people a deal, you, you often you need to show them the deal. And you can have options for upsizing and going, Hey, you know, this is a great option. You can do, you could do this. And, but I think that was one very practical thing I learned about is, is to think about um, actually purposely having a big, um, a big, op, big amounts of options on prices. And it's something I, I really pay attention to on menu building now is I really try and uh, structure menus. So there's uh, price points for everybody. Got and, it. And, um, you know, yeah. Um, you know, what's the one practical thing? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know a lot of certainly there there were lots of um you no know, I probably would have started opening less days so I could be more present mm-hmm. and uh, you know start start smaller and expand uh, mm-hmm. when when i when I had the resources, um, I tried to I think I was started opening up seven days a week right away, which is great if you can be there uh, if you have the you know the resources to be there, but I, I you know I was re- relying on uh, I had some really wonderful staff, but it's still challenging to put, leave them in those positions.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, yeah. And I, and I certainly, I went, you know, some, some of it, it, some of it is really luck. You know, when, when I opened, um, uh, you know, a couple months after I opened the economy fell apart Mm -hmm. and, you know, the stock stock market crash and like every place in town was having a rough time. And, um, not unsimilar to places that opened and then COVID happened immediately after. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, COVID is arguably far worse. But if uh, but if you would had if I if, you know you'd been open for a little while there were there was so many uh the, you know good government subsidies and stuff we could utilize. Now I know restaurants that that weren't able to access those because they they opened up uh, too close to like too close to the beginning of COVID. Mm-hmm. But that was very hard. You know the 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 i was trying to do something a little bit more upscale and very different and i think people were very nervous about their money at the time and uh it was it was hard to kind of you know push something that was a little bit more high end that way uh so you know but who who nobody knew that was gonna happen so that was a big challenge with that business for sure and it kind
0: of started with a pretty big uh pretty big anvil around its neck. Wow yeah no kidding and I'd, yeah. So i'd I'd love to I'd love to to move over a bit to, to Pagliacci's. I want to be respectful of your time here. Just a just a, a couple more questions. Um, so so Pagliacci's was one of the the inspirations of uh, of of the guest getter logo, which is basically just a lineup of people. Which is, I would say, that's that is you know it it's it's okay. it's, it's the it's the exception. It's it's not the norm. And you know, for anyone who lives in Victoria or comes to Victoria, you will often see uh in the evening peg pagliacci's is 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 lined up and um so i would um i would i would love to to hear if you could if you could just distill the reasons why locals and tourists alike continuously flock to Pagliacci's.
1: i don't know why anyone lines up for anything it's <laughs> it's crazy right
0: mm-hmm.
1: i mean i i I'll never know, you know, what the magic thing is that, I mean, if we, if, if it was that easy to distill, you know, something like that, then we, there'd be 300 Pagliacci's. Um, you know, that's certainly Mm -hmm. not something that I've, that I've ever known how to, why that, 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 why, you know, what that magic, um, connection is, um, I I, I hopefully what it is, is that is that we that they feel enough love for what we do, and that we we kind of continually kind of go forward with that spirit of hospitality about welcoming strangers and 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 uh, putting joy and happiness first Mm -hmm. and um, and trying to create a unpretentious welcoming environment where we do deeply care about about everything that we, every part of the experience for the guest, mm-hmm. and that we don't have a lot of bullshit. You know, we we don't we're not charging you an extra fifty cents because you want you want some more cheese, right? Mm-hmm. We're not we're not doing we're not nickel and diming people. We're not trying to you know we're not trying to upsell them. We're not trying to um, do anything other than make sure that they love their experience. And I'm much more worried about someone coming and I'd rather give give back every dime to somebody. Uh, and make sure that they leave knowing that if they were upset for any reason, that I'm sorry and that it wasn't my intention, and, and so that they kind of go, "Well, I'll come back again another time." Mm-hmm. And and because I, I really I don't care about making money from a guest one time. I want long term guests. Totally.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you focus on on the on how much money you make tonight, right? If you if you focus on the the hand as opposed to the whole the uh, the whole game, right? um you're you're dead before you start because you know good hey there there's a there's a model out there i'm sure for for um uh you know restaurants and bars and stuff focusing on you know like an airport bar it doesn't really care if you ever come back right they're just trying to get you in the one time and get as much money out of you as possible um you know that's the tourist trap model mm-hmm. um, i don't want to do that I don't want to be part of that i don't want to you know i don't want to go down i don't want to spend money on advertising i want to spend money on live music mm-hmm. um so i i think it's about it's about the repeat guests and it's about creating memorable experiences that people talk about mm-hmm. i worked at another place i was running and um they said hey you should get live music in here and I went, i'd love to get live music in here but let me be clear with you we're going to spend 500 on the band and you're going to expect to see an extra $1,500 in the register at the end of the night, because we got a band and it's never going to happen. So you have to like, accept that we're going to get a live band and you might see the exact same amount of money in the register that you did before we had a band and you have to give up on being solely you, you have to pay attention to numbers. I'm a numbers I sit up most of my days to spend in front of spreadsheets Mm -hmm. and, and worrying about, cost percentages and stuff like that. And I I, I live in that world more than anywhere. Mm-hmm. But if you I and if you if you only do that, if you don't have an aesthetic to the to the restaurant, if you don't think about just making people happy and screw if you lose money, um, you will you will not get people who love the place, you know, mm-hmm. m- music, live music is not to make money live music is to make memories, which means that people always remember Pagliacci's or, or wherever the places. And I think that that is, you, you have to be, you have to, it's a soulful business if you want to do it this way and you, and you have to, you have to do it that way.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I, yeah. I, I love that. In, in a, in a way it, 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 it seems to me like spending the money on a band is in itself, a, it's a form of, of advertising to the people who already come in and the idea isn't, it's not to, um, it's, it's that idea of you, you want to like break even, like if you break even on the cost of the band and what you make that night, that's great because you know that those people and the memories that they had is going to cause them to come back again and again and again and again. Would you say that I have that right? Or Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that, that's what matters, right? It, it's, it's that there's, there's people all over the world that, uh, you know, they talk about Victoria and they'll talk about Poliachi Mm -hmm. because they had a memorable experience here and you can you can do it you know some of the most memorable experiences I've given to guests are when I've made the most amount of mistakes Mm -hmm. because if you you do everything perfect and you you like I've had perfect service before with no personality and -hmm. it's not memorable you don't care about at the end it's like you don't go oh my god that was like you know there's no story you, you go into a place and the food's good and like and everything arrived on time and the and the, the server was was you know put the food in front of you and said please and thank you and we did you know picked up the fork right and everything and 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 you you walk out of there going well i had a meal if you know if you haven't if you screw up at a table or with a with a guest at the bar that's your opportunity to do all the above and beyond stuff and be dramatic and 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 show how much you care, and that's when it makes an impression upon guests.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One,
1: one thing with uh, green, green staff members, I really try and kind of lock in is is the sense of you need to care more about the guest experience than they do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To the extent where you know, let's say the, the food, you know, they ordered a steak, and, and you realize that the steak has been they've been waiting twenty five minutes for food. And you look over at the table, and they clearly they're happy and they've got drinks and they don't, they're not worried that the food is taking too long and they don't seem to notice it. So the, what m- the vast majority of, uh, of service staff I see do is go, they didn't notice the food's taking too long, I'll just avoid the table. I won't go over there. I won't make eye contact. Or if I do, I'm not going to say anything about the food or, or I go like, Oh, I, you know, or if they say something, I'll go like, Oh, I should be up any minute. You know, the best thing you can do is to go over the table and go, Oh my God, it's been 25 minutes since your food's been coming. I'm losing my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I've sent out here some meatballs on the table. You know, like, I'm so sorry this is taking so long. I'm going to go back and talk to the chef right now. Please let me know if there's any. and, and, and I guess the worry is that that you, that you're going to say that to guests, and they're going to go, "You're right, it has been too long." And that never happens, mm-hmm. you know. E- either one, the guest was upset, and you didn't notice it, and now all of a sudden they feel better because, oh, you're on my side, and you care just as much as I do. In fact, more. Or they go, "Oh my God, this server cares more about the, f- the food than I do," and you just go, "Don't worry about it. Like, take take your time. We're having a great time, really." Don't don't give it another thought. Oh my God, you brought over meatballs? We, we, this is way, oh my gosh, I can't believe anyone did this. And then you've tur- turned this thing into this amazing experience. And then if, if it does take 40 minutes for the steak to get there, the, the, the guests are so on your side at that point. They're, they feel so taken care of and they know they can talk to you about it. That 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 there's that you're not going to deal with a horrible complaint where they, where they feel the need to go online and, and say what a horrible experience they had because it wasn't, it wasn't some stranger perfect automaton waiter. It was a human being who's now their friend who cares about them and they feel cared about. So it's it's not a it's not transactional anymore. It becomes a personable experience, and the more you can breed that in staff, the more you can you can you know have someone look over and go oh you like uh, look over and go like i'm going to get you some more noodles and bring mm-hmm. them over for free you know mm-hmm. like and and do do little things like that little bits of 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 showing how much you care rather than being human vending machines um you know be it's not the food and beverage industry it's hospitality right and if the more it's about hospitality the more people will come back
0: I love that. And, and what ways have you have you found effective to impart that onto your staff? Do you have like do you have like like little mini trainings or or like a like a guidebook or uh, yeah? Well, how do you do that?
1: We I've done some staff manual stuff and and uh, and certainly I mean, it's been hard over covid, uh, but we do have you know staff meetings where mainly, you know, staff meetings to me are not a time to talk too much about how we have to make sure that the menus are clean. Um, I think staff, staff meetings are usually a time for morale boosting and, and trying to focus on, on, you know, the spirit of hospitality. So I've certainly given those speeches to people as a group and as individuals. Um, I think trying to give your, your staff a lot of autonomy and trust is really key. Um, you know, in all our POS systems, every one of my staff is set up as a manager. So that first day on the job, my 17-year-old busser, if they need to promo a steak because someone like I, I don't want them to have to go. Oh, I need to get a manager. Yeah. I want them to go. You don't like your steak? Don't worry about it. If you, you well, well, you, no charge, or let me get you something else. I'm gonna get your server and fix it. Mm-hmm. And I tell my staff that you know, hey, if someone says that, you know, if someone says that they they didn't have enough salad and you promo a $200 meal because they didn't get like instead of giving them more salad we're going to have a serious conversation about it and like we'll we'll do some learning but you're not going to get fired for that Mm -hmm. you'll get fired if you can consistently um ignore what the guest needs but as long as you make every decision in the best interest of the guest um and that's what my staff are all that's their mission make all your decisions in the best interest of the guest and 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 choose and, and focus more on what works for the guest than what works for the house and then the house will win in the end, and the service staff will win in
0: the end. And empowering them to do that, I think, is is uh, is very very important. Wonderful, simple philosophy. I feel like that's a great place for us to to begin wrapping it up. And I so I just have so I have one final question, and then uh, just a real a real quick series of rapid fire questions. If you're up for it, are you up for it? Okay, oh, yeah, yeah. okay, awesome. So well, I just... I'm long-winded, So we'll see how the uh, <laughs> the rapid fire works on me. What's yeah. that? I'm long winded. So we'll see how well the rapid fire works. (laughs) Okay, perfect. So uh, I I just want to know, like, what are you, what are you most excited about today? And like, what's just, what's next on the horizon for you? What are you, what are you kind of looking forward to? Uh,
1: Well, I'm, I'm at the moment. I'm, I'm very excited. We just launched an online store uh, Mm -hmm. of of, uh, all polyogic merchandise. So there's about like 150 different items in our online store at pags.ca, P-A-G-S.ca. And uh, I believe there is even a, uh, a promo code for ten percent off for your listeners for a Guest Getter. So if you type in Guest Getter all one word,
0: you get. Amazing. That. So I'm
1: I'm I'm very excited, doing a lot of work on that and designing things like my jacket here and stuff. So I uh, I've been really excited about that lately.
0: Well, I'll, uh, I'll I'll be I'll be one of the next customers and, and hopefully there are a few others. Um, okay, that's 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 awesome. And um, okay, so some rapid fire cues. What is or uh, questions? What's your what's your go to cocktail right now?
1: Mm, this time of year, Manhattan.
0: Manhattan? And what's your favorite spirit in yeah. that Manhattan? Which? Uh...
1: Oh, good quality rye. I do. We, we were mentioning Sazerac rye before, which I do quite like. So I think that Sazerac makes a
0: fine Manhattan. Nice. My preference is Rittenhouse. I love Rittenhouse uh, Manhattans. Um, love it.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. I won't throw it out for eating crackers.
0: What's that? I won't throw Rittenhouse out of the bed for eating crackers. <laughs> um, what, what book tool or resource has had the greatest impact on you? Oh, um, what
1: book tool I, I think um, there, there's different levels of that. I mean, probably Dave Wonderridge's andmbibe was, was I think number one for me because that came out shortly after I got down the path of, uh, of cocktails and and I, I love the historical bend on it and, and knowing the history of drinks. So probably Im-
0: Imbibe would be the number one thing that, that made a big impact on me. Awesome. Uh, where's the next place you travel to for inspiration or influence on how you may evolve your, your business?
1: Uh, before COVID, I, I was uh, Sean Sewell and I were talking about a, a trip to Spain to go and study sherry together. Amazing. We both have a deep love of sherry. so. I'd really like to get back on that again and 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 go to Spain and, and do some serious sherry study.
0: Awesome, yeah, that's a dream of mine as well. And uh, let let's say a donor were to bestow fifty thousand dollars on you to improve or grow your business somehow. How would you spend that money? Oh, that's an interesting question.
1: Uh, we we just kind of did that with a patio out front. So, I mean, in a very practical sense with some of the government um, uh, programs, we, we built an a outside patio that I'm really proud of, that's really beautiful and, and the kind of thing that I hope uh, to see a lot
0: more of in Victoria. So, I think building out that kind of stuff is most important to me. Awesome. Awesome. Solomon, thank you so much. This, this was awesome. So many, uh, so many wisdom nuggets. And uh, so you mentioned, you mentioned pegs.ca where people can go and they can, they can buy some sweet uh, peliachi's merch. Uh, is there anywhere else you would like people to go any other calls to action or any way they, they might, uh, they might be able to connect with you?
1: Well, yeah, pags.ca. We have got a lot of stuff there now. Uh, you can buy online gift cards and stuff too for that you can send out as your last-minute uh, Hanukkah presents and. Uh, and then uh, we've got live music, uh, as I mentioned, Sunday through Thursday, 8 to 10. We've got a fantastic happy hour every single day from three to five. I'd love to see people down at that, you know, five dollar Negronis. You can't go wrong with that. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and you can add on a bite for four bucks. So for nine dollars, you got a bite to eat and a great cocktail we proper have. Negronis, too. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, we, yeah, so uh, you know th- that's all very exciting, and then we're um, uh, we're starting to take bookings for our New Year's Eve party. If this is uh, if you're listening to this before New Year's Eve, um, and uh, that's going to be a, a four course meal with live music and a sparkling wine toast at midnight
0: for ninety five bucks plus taxes and gratuities. Awesome, awesome, Solomon. Th- thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Guest Getter. I'm your host, Kyle Guilfoyle. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. As always, you can head over to guestgetter.co to check out the resources in this episode's show notes and sign up for our weekly newsletter. That is it for today. We'll see you next time.